I'm going to begin this evening with St. Ambrose's prayer before Holy Communion. St. Ambrose was a, a famous bishop of the early church. He, he was the one who, through his preaching, helped convert St. Augustine. He baptized St. Augustine. Uh, he has a famous writing called On the Mysteries. It's on the seven sacraments. It's amazing writing. Uh, he wrote and lived uh, towards the end of the fourth century, so in the late 300s. And he wrote this beautiful prayer called The Prayer Before Holy Communion. And I, I taped it in the front of my Bible. I like to pray it. I like to take my Bible to Mass and to pray this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray from the middle section. I'm not going to pray the entire prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Look upon me with thine eyes of mercy, O Lord Jesus Christ, eternal King, God and man, crucified for man's sake. Graciously hear me who hope in thee. Have mercy on me who am full of wretchedness and sin. Thou who ceasest never to flow as a fountainhead of mercy. Hail, saving victim, offered up upon the gibbet of the cross for me and for all men. Hail, noble and precious blood, flowing from the wounds of my crucified Lord Jesus Christ and washing away the sins of the whole world. Remember, O Lord, thy creature, whom thou hast redeemed with thy blood. I repent that I have sinned. I desire to amend what I have done. Take from me, therefore, O most merciful Father, all my iniquities and my sins, so that cleansed in mind and body I may worthily taste the Holy of Holies. Let's pray our prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, be present now and let your Holy Spirit bow all hearts in love and truth today to hear your word and keep your way. Give us the grace to grasp your word that we may do what we have heard. Instruct us through the scriptures, Lord, as we draw near, O God, adored. To God the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, three in one, to you, O blessed Trinity, be praised throughout eternity. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, today we're going to cover chapter 17 of our textbook, Understanding the Scriptures. And for those of you who have ordered textbooks for the, for the spring semester, they're not in yet. So I'll, 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 uh, I'll give you guys a call uh, before uh, next week, so I'll, I'll get, when those come in. So I'll get those to you, and I'll know who you are by the sign-in sheet. Okay, I'm going to begin with a, a paragraph from the Catechism. It's paragraph number 129, 129. And this is the, this is the first part of the Catechism, which, start, which talks about the revelation of God, how God has revealed things to us. And it talks about, it's going to help illuminate our study this evening on the New Testament because it talks about how we read the New Testament and how we read the Old Testament now that we have the New Testament. So here, here it is. 
Christians read the Old Testament in the light of Christ crucified and risen. Such typological reading discloses the inexhaustible content of the Old Testament. But it must not make us forget that the Old Testament retains its own intrinsic value as revelation, reaffirmed by our Lord himself. And then at this point, the catechism gives us this scripture verse, Mark 12, 29 through 31. We're going to look at that in just a moment. Besides, the New Testament has to be read in the light of the old. Early Christian catechesis, or teaching, made constant use of the Old Testament. And here the the catechism quotes St. Paul in 1 Corinthians. As an old saying put it, the New Testament lies hidden in the old, and the Old Testament is unveiled in the new. And that's a statement by St. Augustine. If you look in the footnotes of the catechism, it'll say St. Augustine, and it'll show the reference. And again, I'm going to repeat that. The New Testament lies hidden in the old. And we saw this all last semester. We saw all throughout the Old Testament how the New Testament was kind of concealed within it. And then he continues, and the Old Testament is unveiled. And the, the word unveil in Greek is apocalypsis, or apocalypse, to unveil. The Old Testament is unveiled, it's revealed in the new. Reveal, you know, veil, comes from the same root. And so the, the two testaments are tied up with one another. And so in this, as we study the New Testament, when we study the Old Testament, we always, we always hearken forward to the New Testament. And we were, we were looking at the New Testament as we were going throughout the Old. And now as we go through the New Testament, we're going to be hearkening back to the Old. Because if we really want to understand what the New Testament authors are saying, we need to know the Old Testament. Because the New Testament authors presuppose that you know the Old Testament well. Okay, let's look at this first passage that the Catechism gives us. It talks about how the Old Testament revelation is reaffirmed by our Lord. So let's turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 29. And we'll see where the catechism is is, uh, pointing us to. So we can read it in context. And this is what Jesus says in Mark 12, verse 29 through 31. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. And this is Jesus quoting Deuteronomy. The first is this, the first commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Okay, so there's, there's our Lord quoting Deuteronomy, the second law, talking about how that revelation still has value for us, even though that the new has come. Uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians, that second quotation from the whole sacred scripture that the catechism gave us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I believe we used 
we went over this uh, this verse. We might have gone over it in a previous session. I know we went over the next one that we're going to be looking at. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Your boasting is not appropriate. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens all the dough? Clear out the old yeast so that you may become a fresh batch of dough inasmuch as you are unleavened. For our paschal lamb Christ has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Huh? You know, it's kind of like, what are you talking about? We need to become a fresh batch of dough? I mean, okay, Paul, um, what did you have for breakfast? Well, you know, what, what, he's, what he's referring to is the Feast of Unleavened Bread that accompanied Passover, the, you know, this week of fest, festivities. And Christ, when he celebrated the Last Supper, what kind of a meal was that? What was it called? Yeah, the Passover. It was a Passover meal. That's what the Last Supper was. And so Christians, when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, they're celebrating the new Passover, a Passover meal, transformed and renewed by Christ. And so St. Paul can say, for our Paschal Lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Just like the Paschal Lamb in the Old Testament was sacrificed, therefore let us celebrate the feast. What feast? The Lord's Supper. The new Passover, because Christ is our Passover lamb. So he's using the Old Testament, the Old Testament feast of Passover, which you can read about in Exodus chapter 12. Okay, let's turn to that second reference that the Catechism gives us in 1 Corinthians, which is in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. And yes, I remember referring to this in a previous session. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting with verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all of them were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was the Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them, for they were struck down in the desert. Okay, these people were baptized into Moses, and they ate spiritual food, and they drank spiritual drink. What are the sacraments of Christian initiation? What are the Christians celebrating? What are these, these Corinthians, when they became Christians, they were baptized, and they ate the Eucharist, and they drank the Eucharist. And Paul is using the Exodus narrative from the book of Exodus, where Israel came out of Egypt to talk about the Lord's Supper in the sacrament of baptism. He continues in verse 6. These things happened as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil things as they did. And do not become idolaters as some of them did. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to revel. Let us not indulge in immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 
fell within a single day. Let us not test Christ as some of them did and suffer death by serpents. Do not grumble as some of them did and suffer death by the destroyer. These things happen to them as an example and they have been written down as a warning to th- those people who still follow the Old Testament, right? The, uh, the, the non-Christian Jews, right? Or the Samaritans. No, he says, as a warning to us, upon whom the end of the ages has come. The end of the ages has come. The, the fulfillment of the Old Testament has come upon the, the people of God with the advent of Jesus Christ. And so here we have Paul saying, hey, look, if the people in the Old Covenant, without the graces of salvation, without the ability to overcome our sin, without the forgiveness of sins, if they you know, spurned the Lord and ended up dying, what, what, what do you think you can... What do you think you're going to do? How do you think you're going to get off? You know, you people who have grace, who have the supernatural power of the sacraments, who have baptism and Holy Eucharist, and yet you spurn the Lord. You think you're going to get off? No. No. You know, Paul is, Paul is uh, ec- uh, neighing or, you know, xing the idea of cheap grace. Now that we have grace, you know, it doesn't matter. We can just go and sin. We can be Corinthians. You know, Corinthians, Corinth was a place of great sin, Back in the day, it was, a, it, was a, it was a Greek port city, you know, with lots of sailors. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to continue to quote from the catechism. We just looked at paragraph 129. Now I'm going to read from 131 to 133. And such is the force and power of the word of God that it can serve the church as her support and vigor and the children of the church as strength for their faith, food for the soul, and a pure and lasting font of spiritual life. The church isn't talking about the sacraments. This is about the Bible, the word of God. Hence, access to sacred scripture ought to be open wide, to the Christian faithful. Now we're in paragraph 132. Therefore, the study of the sacred page should be the very soul of sacred theology. The ministry of the word too, pastoral preaching, catechetics, and all forms of Christian instruction, among which the liturgical homily, the Sunday sermon, should hold pride of place. It is healthily nourished and thrives in holiness through the word of Scripture. uh, Paragraph 133, the church forcefully and specifically exhorts all the Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequent reading of the divine scriptures. And then it quotes St. Jerome, who was a contemporary of St. Augustine. Ignorance of the scriptures is ignorance of Christ. Okay, so as we enter into the New Testament... I'm, what I'm doing is I'm refreshing you in what the church has to say about Scripture. You know, this is going to be the energy for our spiritual life. This is going to support us. This is going to feed us. It's going to nourish us. And so, in our diocese, in the Diocese of Austin, Texas, what is the year 2007 from January the 1st 
through December the 31st, what is this year designated as by Bishop Gregory Amond? Wow, you guys are good. Yeah. You read your Catholic diocesan newspaper, the Catholic Spirit. That's right. So this is the year of the word. The year of the word. And remember, word is God's revelation. It came in the Old Testament through the prophets. And the Jews had an apost- not an apostolic, but they had a mosaic tradition that they considered authoritative as well. And so in the New Testament, uh, the word of God comes to us in sacred scripture as inspired. It's God-breathed. It's the very words of God and the words of men. This is very unique. It's inspired. And the other component, the other channel of divine revelation is apostolic tradition. Apostolic tradition. Because not everything got written down in sacred scripture. There are other th- and also ways to interpret scripture continue in the liturgy of the church. Like, we have baptism all over the New Testament. We have it uh, in 1 Peter. He, he starts out in the first epistle of Peter. Peter starts out by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy gave us a new birth to a living hope. Later on, he talks about how baptism was prefigured by the saving and uh, deadly waters of the flood. We talked about that last semester. And, he, uh, and basically, so he's, he's using, he's talking about baptism in his epistle. We have baptism talked about in John 3. We have baptism talked about in the epistle to Titus. We have baptism in Romans 6. We have the baptismal robes talked about in the book of Revelation. Uh, baptism in Hebrews. We just saw baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's all over scripture. But what is baptism? Is it just a symbol or does it actually affect what it symbolizes? Is it, a, is it in the sense, that it, does it have the power of an oath? Well, the liturgy is, is uh, the high point of apostolic tradition. That's what uh, Cardinal Ratzinger wrote in one of his books, is that the liturgy is like the high point of apostolic tradition. We've always been baptizing. We've always known what it means for 2,000 years. And so apostolic tradition is not inspired. It's not inspired. It's animated. It's kept alive in the life of the church. Okay, it's animated. And so the Holy Spirit animates the church, animates her life, keeps her alive, keeps her life flowing and going, keeps her interpretation of sacred scripture pure. You know, keeps, and and so much so that, that we know that 400 years later after Christ, or actually 360 years after Christ, when the church starts canonizing the New Testament starts saying, okay, the shepherd of Hermes, the uh, Paul's epistle to the Laodiceans, uh, uh, Pope Clement's letter to the Corinthians, the Didache, the epistles of Ignatius, the apostle, I mean, I'm sorry, the gospel according to uh, Peter, the gospel according to Thomas, all these other writings are purporting to be sacred scripture. The church says, no, those aren't scripture. But yet, Though the, some pieces of scripture, such as um, uh, the epistle to uh, uh, the epistle of James, the epistle of Jude, uh, I think first, second, and third John, 
Revelation, Hebrews, these books were disputed in the church. Uh, Some churches didn't consider them scripture, some did. Well, finally, the church, animated by apostolic tradition, was able to tell us what's in sacred scripture. So they kind of feed off of one another. They they, uh, depend upon one another. And I want to point you guys to uh, a verse in scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15 where St. Paul is writing. By the way, 2 Thessalonians was one of the, probably one of, the, one of the first epistles, one of the first New Testament writings ever to be written. Paul's 13 epistles come before uh, the Gospels. And Paul's first epistle probably to be written was 1 Thessalonians. But in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, we're given a command. And this command is, he says, Therefore, brothers, and when he says brethren, he's not excluding you, ladies, Brethren means, you know, all of us. God bless you. Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught, either by an oral statement or by a letter of ours. And so these traditions, these traditions come to us in both ways, by letters of theirs as well as what has been passed on in the church and animated by the Spirit. So when I say year of the word, what Bishop Gregory Amon wants to focus on is scripture, which is part of the word. Or should I say one channel of the word. And this sacred scripture, again, is is the only inspired literature in the world. In the uni- I mean, there is no other, no Pope's encyclical, no catechism, nothing else is inspired. This is a unique prerogative aspect of the Bible that is actually God's word in the words of men. It doesn't just contain God's word. It is God's word. It is God's word. Are you saying that that applies to the Old Testament as well? Yes, yes. Everything is inspired. All the Old Testament and all of the New Testament. Okay? Now remember what's, what's inspired are the original autographs, the original writings, not the copies of the copies of the copies. So you could have a transcribal error introduced. Um, And that's, thank goodness, that we have biblical sciences to help us with that. So this year of the word, we're going to be focusing on sacred scripture. We're going to be reading it. We're going to be studying it. Uh, There have been Lenten Bible studies mandated in every parish throughout the diocese. And so you'll, you'll see more of this advertised. And if you feel like participating in addition to the study, feel free. Uh, If you know people who want to do uh, more of a sharing, more of a, a life applica- applicable type Bible study, um, you can let your friends know. But th- that's going to be the six weeks during Lent. Okay. The New Testament. The New Testament. What, what Latin word does testament come from? Do you guys remember? Testamentum, just add a U-M on the end. So testament is really a Latin word. We just take off the U-M. And what, what word in English does testamentum translate to besides testament? Do you guys remember? No? This was in the, the third lesson, you know, chapter 2, the Old Testament. I was talking about this. 
Yeah. It's also talking about the Old Testament. So I had to tell you guys what testament meant, right? Testament means covenant. So remember, we looked at the Last Supper when Jesus said, this chalice, you know, is, the, is my blood of the covenant. He uses Moses' words from the book of Exodus. He says, this is the blood of the covenant. Well, St. Jerome, when he translates the Bible into Latin, he says, novum testamentum. That's how he translates new covenant in, in, as it was in Greek. Because that's what Jesus, that's what the, the Gospels were written down in, was Greek. And so he translates this to Latin, and he says, Novum Testamentum. So he took the chalice, and he said, this is the New Testament. <laughs> what? No, that's, 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 uh, that, that's wet. Uh, testament, you know, the New Testament is printed, right? Yeah, no. No, Testamentum means covenant. So when we say the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's identical to saying the Old Covenant and the New Covenant the new covenant. And who in the Old Testament prophesied about the new covenant? He says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I should probably have tested you at the end of last semester. Not Zechariah, no. Jeremiah. Either it was Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Which one do you guys think it was? Jeremiah or Ezekiel? Ezekiel actually probably wrote after Jeremiah and used some of what Jeremiah wrote. Okay? So you see parallels between uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel as Ezekiel came after Jeremiah. But this is what Jeremiah says in chapter 31. Verse 31. It's easy to remember. Just remember 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why are there two houses? Right, because the kingdom of David had split into the north and the south, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. So he's saying, I will reunite these kingdoms, in the one kingdom, like it was under David, with this novum testamentum, this New Testament. Okay, So the New Testament isn't just, you know, Christians came up with it or Jesus invented it. No, this comes from Jeremiah, the word New Testament. Okay, New Testament, testamentum, covenant. Okay, the New Testament is composed of how many books or writings? All the, all the purple ones with your, your Bible tabs? That's great. Just the New Testament. Yes, 27. We have 27. 27 books of the New Testament. Or you could say writings. By the way, what is the word Bible come from? Biblios. And what does Biblios mean? Books or book. Right. So Bible means book. So 
I have a collection of Bibles at my house. That's right. So we, we're calling it the book, right? The Bible. That's what that means. Okay, so first we have four Gospels. Of course, many more were written, but only four or are authentic, are actually, you know, are, are, were written by authority with, you know, with apostolic authority by the apostles or apostolic men. After the four Gospels, we have Acts of the Apostles. And Acts of the Apostles is the sequel to what Gospel? Luke, right. So if we, were, if we wanted to put the Bible in order properly, probably, we should say Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts of the Apostles, John. Because it was one scroll where Luke wrote his gospel and wrote Acts of the Apostles right after it. It was one writing. But we separate them to put all the four gospels together. But always remember that Acts of the Apostles was appended to Luke. And then we have Paul's 13 epistles, beginning with what epistle? Romans. Trick question. He probably wrote 1 Thessalonians first. But why don't we put 1 Thessalonians right after Acts of the Apostles? Why do we put Romans? Yeah, the length. We, they're approximately longest to shortest. Longest to shortest. So we, we have Romans, and we have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, etc., etc. And after Paul's 13 epistles, we have the epistle to the Hebrews, which some people thinks, think it was written by Paul, so Paul would have 14 epistles. But the majority of scholars say, no, it wasn't written by Paul. It doesn't say it was written by Paul. No, some, people think it, some people in the early church thought it was written by Paul. Other people denied that. Nobody really. It's written very differently with much different Greek than Paul's epistles, so it probably wasn't written by him. Probably. But it could have been. I'm not going to say no. But Hebrews is great because it's a, it's a homily from the early church. It was a sermon given most probably on a Sunday. And it was so good that all the Christians started copying it. They said, we want to keep this. Pastor, can we have a copy of that? Can you email it to us? So we emailed it on, you know, copies of vellum. Uh, you know, he had to slaughter a couple of sheep to do that. Uh, but Hebrews was an epistle <clears throat> to Jewish Christians who were being tempted by persecution to return back to Judaism. So Hebrews talks about how the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament and prefigures the New Testament, and the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. So Hebrews is just filled with Old Testament, left to right, front to back, top to bottom. And after Hebrews, we have what we call the seven Catholic Epistles. Why do we call them the seven Catholic epistles? Are these the seven books that Catholics have and Protestants don't? No. No, those are seven Old Testament books that Catholics have and Protestants do not. These seven Catholic epistles are called Catholic by everybody. Why, are they, why do they use that term? Yeah, it means universal. Or more literally, according to the whole. Kataholos according to the whole, because these epistles were not written to the Corinthians or to those people in Galatia or those people in Ephesus or to the church in Rome, but they, were, they, they aren't really addressed to anybody. They're kind of universally addressed, you know, so they were sent out to lots of churches, 
And so it's sent out to the universal church, the whole church, according to the whole. And then we, the New Testament uh, is followed with the book of Revelation. And by the way, please do not make the mistake of calling it Revelations. One time I was listening to MC Hammer on uh, one of those broadcasting networks on cable. And MC Hammer was up there. You know, MC Hammer has become like a preacher guy. And so he's up there, you know, and he goes, don't touch this. No, I'm just kidding. He says, <laughs> MC Hammer goes, let's read from the book of Revelations. And the book of Revelations is, and I'm like, dude, it's not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. You know? Is there, Revel, Revelation comes from the Greek word, I gave it to you early, earlier, apocalypsis, which means to unveil. To unveil. Did I spell veil right there? Yes, okay, English professors in the room. Okay, so apocalypsis does not mean the end of the world or Mel Gibson's movie or, you know, it means to unveil. And, and where in our culture, which is Christian, or Catholic, which is Christian, which comes from Judeo roots, from the Jews, what tradition in our culture involves, involves an unveiling at a sacred ceremony? Wedding? Yeah, a wedding. And in the book of Revelation, it specifically says what's happening is the blank feast of the Lamb. The wedding feast of the Lamb. So we have the wedding feast of the Lamb, the wedding feast between Jesus and the church in the book of Revelation, right? And it's, it's called the book of Revelation, the book of unveiling, the book of apocalypsis, because we have an unveiling. And it's possibly, it's very possibly an allusion to the, the revelation of the church, which is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Revelation is all about the coming about of the church. The coming about of the church, which is composed of 144,000 Jewish male virgins, right? And, uh, and a number from all the nations and no one can count. You find out in the book of Genesis. So when you get to heaven, there'll be 144,000 Jewish male virgins and as Jehovah's Witnesses teach, uh, the rest of us are, you know, are just doomed to a, uh, just a simple life here on Paradise Earth. Because heaven is full of the 144,000 already. <laughs> Next time a Jehovah's Witness talks to you, say, oh, by the way, those 144,000 in heaven, let's read that literally. Those are Jewish male virgins, by the way. <laughs> so you say there are no women in heaven? Now... The Gospel of Matthew, how does it begin? What's on the front title page? What does it say? The Gospel according to Matthew. Kata, let me see here, Kata Matayan. I'm going to write it up here in Greek. According to, remember Catholic comes from Kata Holos, according to the whole. Well, the, the Gospel begins with Kata or according to Matayan. Let me see if I can transliterate this as, as, uh, as well as I can. M-A-T-T-H-A-I-O-N. Kata Matayan is how it begins. So this is written by Matthew, it tells us. 
is kata matayon, which was on the original Greek manuscript, is that part of the Bible? Is that inspired sacred scripture? No. No. That was added to a manuscript centuries, probably in the, sec- probably in the third century, after the gospel had been copied and copied and copied. Originally, when Matthew wrote his gospel, he, he, Matthew, when he penned the gospel, he did not say kata matayon. He did not say that. He just started with the genealogy, the genesis. The genealogy, the genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Is that how it begins? Okay, good. Okay. And then later on, somebody else appended this. Nowhere in the Gospel of Matthew does it say that it was written by Matthew. This right here, this title, is apostolic tradition. This is what was handed on by the church. So it's kind of cool to see apostolic tradition in the, in the Bible, kind of playing with it. And, okay, according to Matthew, and according to Matthew, Matthew, who was, was Matthew? Was he one of the apostles, or was he one of the apostles' disciples, or was he somebody else? He was the apostle. Right, the apostle Matthew. And Matthew... You know, a lot of these apostles had more than one name because they had like a Hebrew name and a Greek name or Hebrew name and a Roman name. And Matthew's other name is what? Yeah, Levi. So, and is Levi uh, a Greek name? Where does Levi come from? Yeah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel originally, the tribe of Levi. There was a Levi who was the son of Jacob. And Jacob has name changed to Israel, so he's the son of Israel, Levi. So Matthew was named after Levi. And he was an apostle. What was his profession before he became uh, an apostle? Tax collector. Tax collector. All right, so he worked for the IRS. Great. And you know, the uh, people loved it when tax collectors converted to Christianity, you know, because they no longer... They no longer made you pay more than what you really had to pay. They no longer extorted you. So it was like, please convert to Christianity. You know, we love it when tax collectors uh, stop collecting more than they should. And his gospel was most, most probably written to a Jewish Christian audience in Palestine. Okay, so a Jewish Christian audience in Palestine. Now, all of the four gospels profusely use the Old Testament. So you can't say just because Matthew uses the Old Testament or alludes to the Old Testament, therefore he's writing to Jewish Christians. No, 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 no. The, the reason why we think this is because he doesn't explain Jewish customs. Whereas Mark, you know, he's, he's like, yeah, and, and the, uh, you know, Jesus castigated the Pharisees, you know, for, for putting their, tradi- their human traditions above the, 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 the word of God because the, the, you know, the Jews uh, wash their hands in special ceremonial uh, washings after they eat. And so Mark kind of explains that. And so we know that you know, Mark's audience wasn't completely Jewish, Christian. It was Gentile Christian because the Gentiles didn't do that before they became Christian. They're like, what, what is Jesus talking about? 
So Matthew wrote to Jewish Christian audience probably in the Holy Land. It begins with the infancy of Jesus, an infancy narrative. Actually, it begins with his genealogy. So you have the infancy. And after this infancy narrative, it's structured like one of the books of the Old Testament in this way. Matthew's gospel goes like this. Jesus does stuff, heals people, travels, teaches, And then he teaches. There's a discourse. And then he does stuff. He travels. He does stuff. Heals people. Then he teaches. Then he does stuff. He travels. He he heals people. And he teaches. And this happens five times. There are five successions of this. What Old Testament book was kind of structured like this? Numbers. Remember the book of Numbers? We have Israel's history, a history of sinning, and then law is given because of transgressions. So God's God's word is revealed. Then we have actions, sin, law is revealed. It happens over and over and over again. And so the Gospel of Matthew is almost kind of like the book of Numbers in that sense. And so we have, in the middle, we have the five books of Matthew. The five... uh, He does something, he says something. He does something, he says something. And what, in in Matthew, what is the most famous of these discourses, of these sermons? Sermon on the Mount, Mount, or the Mountain. As it says in the the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, it says that he went up a mountain. Okay, so it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And that's uh, chapters 5 through 7. And then Matthew's gospel uh, culminates in and kind of concludes with the Passion Week narratives, the suffering and resurrection of Jesus. So we have the fulfillment of the Old Testament in the life of Christ. We have his suffering, death, resurrection. And then let's not forget that also tied up with that is his ascension into heaven. So this is Matthew's gospel. Matthew, traditionally in the early church, Everybody says that Matthew's gospel came first. It was the first gospel to be written. Now today, most scholars will tell you that Mark was written first. And one of the major arguments proposed is that Mark's gospel is shorter. Therefore, you know, the, um, it's, it's kind of like things evolve. You know, Mark writes the simple stuff. Matthew takes Mark and kind of, it kind of evolves. It gets bigger. You know, kind of like that. And, like, why would anybody take Matthew's gospel and cut out things, you know? Well, that may have been the case. It may have been the case. It's not We shouldn't apply the laws of evolution necessarily to uh, the Bible. You know, you, you, could end up, you could end up, because what if Mark, you know, his, his audience wouldn't really be concerned with all these things written to Jewish Christians. And he's writing to a Roman audience who's living in this fast-paced city life of Rome, and he wants a faster gospel. Mark uses the word immediately how many times? Forty. Mark's gospel is not structured. I mean, in any real orderly way. We can't, like, say it's exactly like this and this and this. Because Mark's gospel just tells a narrative and goes fast. And then immediately, and he immediately, and they immediately, and immediately. And then before you know it, it's over with. So, so Mark may have used his audience and his own way of writing 
to shorten Matthew's gospel, and it could have been written after Matthew. Okay? I'm not saying that definitely Matthew wrote before Mark. I'm saying that, that uh, let's not you know, follow the mainstream just because everybody thinks that Mark was written first because it's shorter. Uh, you know, Matthew had to elaborate upon Mark. Mark was more original. No, not necessarily. Don't, don't, don't buy that. Uh, but it still may be the case that Mark did write first. Who knows? We'll know when we get to heaven. And who cares, really? But, um, okay, so we have the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark. And what is, Mark is Mark's Roman name. What is Mark's Hebrew name? What does he go by with the Jews? John, right. So John is his Hebrew name, and Mark is his Roman name. So he's also, you know, so if you ever know of anybody named John Mark, you know, they were named after the second evangelist of the Bible, John Mark. And was Mark traditionally, according to tradition, the early church fathers, when they were writing about these things, the early church historians, was Mark one of the original 12 apostles? No. Who was he? What was the significance about him? He was a disciple of Peter. Right. Because where did Peter go? Rome. In Peter's epistle, let's see here, I believe it's in uh, 1 Peter. Uh, it could be in 2 Peter. Let me see here, I forgot exactly which one it's in. Let me turn here to, I think it's in 1 Peter. Let me turn to it and see if I can't find it for you. Um, yeah, he says in 1 Peter, I... Uh, at the very end of it, he says, the chosen one at Babylon sends you greeting, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a loving kiss. Scripture says it, loving kiss, everybody now. No. no. Okay, the chosen one at Babylon. Babylon was seen as a code name for Rome. Because when you're, you, you know, the leader of the church, Peter, where is he? Where is he? We, we want to, let's get one of those epistles from one of the Christians. He's at, guys, Babylon. <laughs> Babylon? But there's no Babylon around here. He, he couldn't be in Babylon. You know? No, it was, you know, it was like a code word. So he says, Mark, my son. And, and most people think that that Mark is Mark, the writer of the gospel. So Mark was Peter's interpreter, his, the guy who like, you know, showed him Rome. He's like, okay, Peter, we know that you're really from Palestine, but let me introduce you to the city life. You know, where we have apples and iPods and, you know, all kinds of cool things. And we're not from the, you know, from the, from the, uh, from the east. And so Mark um, is writing pr primarily to a Gentile Christian audience. Or it could have been G Gentiles and, and, uh, and Jewish Christians. But he's writing to Christians. And because he explains all these Jewish things, uh, he translates Aramaic phrases of Jesus. So when Jesus says... Um, Talitha kum, when he, when he says, I, I, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me upon the cross in Aramaic? Mark gives the Aramaic, then he translates it to, to Greek, because Jesus spoke Aramaic. Uh, his story goes on and on and on, and in his story, his, his, his gospel could almost be called the Messiah's secret. Jesus heals somebody, and everybody goes, the Messiah is here. And Jesus goes, shh, 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 don't tell anybody. And then Jesus goes over here, 
and he reveals something. Everybody goes, you're the Messiah, let's make you king. And then he says, shh, don't tell anybody. And it's almost like, you know, you're waiting, you're waiting for, for his, his, his uh, uh, office of Messiahship to be proclaimed. And then where does it climax? Where is the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah? Where, or that he's the Son of God? Where is this, who is this given by and where? The Roman centurion at the cross, at the, towards the end of Mark's gospel. Let's see if we can't turn there. Towards the end of the gospel of Mark. Okay, ready, set, go. Who can get there first? You're there? What verse? What chapter? Oh, you're not there yet. That's right, you lied. Huh? 1539. Ooh, I beat you. You were very close. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 39 in Mark's Gospel. When the centurion who stood facing him saw how he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. And remember in the Old Testament, who was the Son of God? The Messiah, the Anointed, the, the Son of David had this prerogative of divine sonship. And so this is the confession of faith. It's like the climax. It's the high point of his gospel. If you're studying the gospel from a literary point of view. Excuse me. And so a Roman centurion makes the confession of faith. Why is, why is this significant? Because Mark's writing to who? Romans. That's right. So I'm sure there are Roman centurions reading his gospel or going to mass, you know, with these Christians going, yeah, that's right. That's right. I was a Roman centurion. That's right. Okay, so we have Mark, you know, enculturating his gospel to his, his uh, audience. And then the, the, the next gospel is written by Luke. And again, nowhere in these gospels does it say kata matayan, kata, you know, Mark. Kata, Luke, this is, uh, this is all from apostolic tradition. And the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, was Luke one of the original 12 apostles? No. Was Luke a Jew? No. He's the only Gentile author of the entire Bible. The only Gentile author. Everybody else is an Israelite from one of the tribes of Israel, one of which is Judah, the Jews. Okay, so Luke is a Gentile. What, what did he do? What was his, what was his uh, profession? Yeah, he was a Gentile physician. And so Luke was a companion of which person that's very important? No. He, later on, he probably got part of the source of his gospel from Mary, but who did he? Paul. Yeah. Did I write that right? No, I didn't. Oh, man, I get that backwards every time. Physician is an S and then a C at the end. There we go. Okay, Gentile physician. So, Paul, going on all these missionary journeys everywhere, it's great to have a doctor on hand, right? You know, if you're going to go to Mexico for a month, you know, go on a mission trip, you're going to want a doctor on hand. So, so, Luke is a physician. He's a Gentile. He's... He's uh, going alongside 
St. Paul. He's St. Paul's companion in his missions. And so when he, when he finished his gospel and he starts writing Acts of the Apostles, he says, we went to this place and that place. We did this and that, because he's with Paul. And we'll see later on that in Acts of the Apostles, Luke writes Acts in order to vindicate Paul. He writes it kind of with a, a literary purpose to show that Paul's in the right. By first showing that Peter said something, then Paul just re-says re what Peter said. Peter's, uh, you know, something from P Peter raises someone from the dead. Paul raises someone from the dead. Also in Acts of the Apostles, what's really cool is that Luke in his gospel talks about Jesus. Jesus heals people. Jesus raises people from the dead. Jesus preaches. And then in Acts of the Apostles, Jesus uh, rises from the dead. Jesus ascends into heaven. They happen right after one another, right? Jesus rose from the dead. The next day he ascended into heaven, right? No. How much time passed between the resurrection and the ascension? 40 days. You mean between Easter Sunday and Ascension Thursday is 40 days? That's right. We relive this in the liturgical calendar. Easter Sunday to Ascension Thursday is 40 days. And it says in the beginning of Acts of the Apostles that Jesus explained to his disciples what? The kingdom of God. So the kingdom continues to be a major theme in Acts of the Apostles. Forty days. Could you imagine having 40 days with Jesus? You'd be asking him everything. You know, what happened? You were crucified. What are, what? So explain the Old Testament to us. Give us some passages. What did you mean when you were celebrating the Last Supper? Was that really your body and your blood? So when we baptize people, I remember we saw the Holy Spirit coming down. Are we supposed to do this as a rite of initiation? I mean, I, I would be all over the place. Yeah. The apostles had 40 days with the resurrected Jesus before his ascension. Lots of things were cleared up. Lots of things were revealed to their fullness. This was very important for the apostles to have these 40 days with their risen Savior and Lord and King. Jesus ascends into heaven, and then what does the church start doing? Healing people. Raising people from the dead. In the, in the Gospels, only one person raises from the dead. That's Jesus. He raises several people from the dead. In Acts of the Apostles, Peter raises someone from the dead. Oh my gosh, you're doing what Jesus did. Paul raises someone from the dead. Oh my gosh, he did what? And so the church is doing what Jesus did. The ministry of Jesus continues in the church. The life of Jesus, the incarnation, continues in the church, which is called the body of Christ. The church is called the body of Christ by Luke, and who, who is the body of Christ, this idea of the body of the Christ, most, most important to? Who, whose insight is this, really? The body, that the church is the body of Christ. Why are you persecuting me, Paul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul's conversion. Paul fell off of the horse. A voice comes from heaven. Jesus reveals himself to Paul, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I wasn't persecuting you. I was persecuting the church. You're persecuting me. Paul, in his epistles, continually refers to the church as the body of Christ because of what experience? His conversion, where Jesus said that, he was, that Paul was persecuting Jesus, but Paul is persecuting the church. Well, how do you explain this? Well, the church is the body of Christ. When you persecute the church, you're persecuting Christ. 
They're inseparable from one another. And so Luke, who is accompanying St. Paul, who's writing St. Paul's theology, talks about the church being the body of Christ. Luke also recounts several times Paul's conversion story. And Luke, being a Gentile, is concerned about the Gentiles, because he himself is a Gentile. So, you know, he emphasizes the salvation of the Gentiles and the going out of the gospel to the Gentiles, especially in Acts of the Apostles. Luke's gospel, because he's a physician, you guys ever been to a doctor's office? You ever looked up on that one wall where there are all these little dots? I mean, there's like red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, green, blue, and just, you know, just thousands of files. Completely organized, right? Yeah, doctors have to stay organized. They they, they like systematization. They like organization. They're type A, you know? Maybe they have really bad handwriting, but they're type A. And so Luke, I'm sorry, if any of you are doctors, I don't mean to offend you out there. Uh, Or is anybody a doctor? Raise your hand. Okay, good, we're safe. The... um, the, so he's writing, so he says in the beginning of his gospel, he says, I have set out to write an orderly account. Many have already undertaken a narrative of the events that have happened. So Luke uses sources that have already come before him. And so Luke's gospel is beautifully written. I mean, from a literary point of view, it's beautiful. Unlike Mark's gospel, it's a little bit more rough, it's a little bit more Roman. And it's very orderly, ordered very nicely. It's logically arranged. Disciple of St. Paul. And he probably wrote his gospel to both Gentiles and Jewish, Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians throughout the Mediterranean world, not in one specific place like Rome or Palestine or also known as the Holy Land. How much time? We don't know. The, most of the, the, the synoptic Gospels, and we call them synoptic because they're like each other, like a synopsis. They're, you know, they, they, they look like each other because they parallel each other because, like Luke says, he used other writings. He probably used Matthew and Mark, or, or Matthew or Mark, when he wrote. And so Luke, when he's writing his... His, his gospel, you know, he's using these other gospels, so it looks like other gospels. We don't know how long passed. Um, Luke's gospel, uh, you know, scholars really differ in when these were written. Uh, best estimates are between 60 and 90, uh, the synoptic gospels. John's gospel is anywhere from 50 to 100. Some people go beyond 100, like even to 150, but I, I think that those are untenable. I would say John's gospel is written somewhere between 50 AD and 100 AD. Why such an early date? Well, there are some really good reasons why, but it would take too much to, to, uh, to go over that now. You know, uh, the scholar John A.T. Robinson has come out with a book redating the New Testament. And in this book, he, he says that every book was written before A.D. 70, before the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. Because nobody mentions the destruction right. of the temple. Right, so. right, right. It's very, and that's, and that's, that's one of the big argument before, se- why 70? Why do a lot of people say, well, it's written somewhere between 60 and 70? Why 70? Because that was the destruction of the temple. None of the Gospels mention that. They mention Jesus' prophecies of the destruction of the temple. Jesus warns the Christians about the destruction to come. 
but they never say it happened. And, and that's what Revelation covers later on, the book of Revelation. Okay, so let's get going here. We have another 15, 20 minutes to go. The, uh, let's go to the Gospel of John. John's Gospel is so different from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I mean, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels. John, was John, and again, John says that the author of the Gospel, you know, is a beloved disciple. We can infer that. But who's the beloved disciple? John. But we don't really know this. If you, if you look closely at the Gospel, it doesn't really, uh, it doesn't really um, you can't really prove that. Again, this comes from tradition. And so John, was John traditionally, is he one of the 12 apostles? Yes. He's the youngest. In fact, he was probably a teenager when he was called to be an apostle. So let's not look down on teenagers in the church. If Jesus Christ picks a teenager to be an apostle, I mean, you know, in fact, there's a, there's a, a, a group out, a Catholic um, uh, discipleship group called Young Apostles. I like it a lot. In fact, Timothy, Paul's person Paul was training was a bishop, and he was so young, people weren't taking him seriously. So Paul said, let no one despise you in your youth. And that's that famous quote, you know, let no one despise you, you in your youth. So don't despise me, guys, okay? That's the whole reason I'm bringing this up. Um, so, so John is one of the youngest, and tradition has it that the other 11 were most possibly uh, martyred, and John died of old age. He, he lived the longest. And so John writes differently than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John almost kind of presupposes these Gospels. And this gives further evidence that it was written later than 50 AD. You know, if the other Gospels were written probably in the early 60s or something, John's Gospel is probably written, you know, after them. Because John seems to kind of presuppose them. One time I was listening to a Cademan Calls, Cademan Call, you know, is a, is a great Christian band. They, uh, uh, one of the, the founders of Cademan's Call uh, his father is the pastor, or was, of uh, Second Baptist in Houston. And Cayman's Call is a great band, one of my favorites. And they have this song, and they're talking about uh, how Peter uh, took his sword and cut off the, the servant's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is like, put that back. You know, put your sword back in its sheath. Huh? How does he know it's Peter? I went and I looked at the Gospel of Matthew, turned there, I'm like, it doesn't say it was Peter. I turned to, I'm like, I've read the Gospels. It does not say who did it. I turned to Luke, didn't say. Turned to Mark, didn't say. I turned to John. John says it was Peter who did it. The Last Supper. All three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, make sure to say exactly what Jesus said. It's very important. Take, eat, this is my body. Take this cup. It is the cup of, the, you know, the new, I, I forgot how it goes. Even though we repeat it every day. The cup of the new and everlasting covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. But John doesn't even give the narrative. Instead, he has Jesus praying for three chapters. In fact, if you open up the Gospel of John, you have a red letter edition of the Bible where it puts Jesus' words in red. You turn to John 14, 15, I'm sorry, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are just red. You know, it's just red, 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 red. Because he's just praying forever. Well, what is John doing? He's giving us a theology of the Eucharist, a theology of the Last Supper. Why do we only allow for Catholics in full communion with the church to receive Holy Communion? 
Why do we have this oppressive rule? Why, why are we so exclusive in the church? Is it because we're better than everybody else? Barbara laughs. She's like, of course. No, because you can't receive it unless you believe it. Unless if you believe it. But what if I believed it, but I wasn't, I wasn't in communion with you? Could I still receive? According to Father Ralph, you could. <laughs> Father Ralph is wrong. <laughs> Yeah, because Holy Communion is a sign of our full communion, that we believe the same things, that we share the same life, that we're one. It's a sign of it, and not only is it a sign of it, but it produces it. It makes us one. St. Paul says we're all one because we all share in the, same, in the one loaf. Now, St. Paul isn't talking about that there was a huge, big loaf of bread, and we all came from all over and ate from it. No, he's talking about... Christ, the one loaf. And we all eat of Christ and we all become one. It's a sign and the effect. It's a sign of communion, full communion. We don't want to lie with our actions. This is the reason we have this. What does John talk about? What does Jesus talk about in his high priestly prayer in John 14 through 17? He says that he prays that as the Father and I are one, I pray that you all will be one so that the world may believe. He talks about unity, the affecting of unity, that we're going to come together. He's giving a theology of the Last Supper. And this is, and this is where Catholic theology comes from. We've been studying John's Gospel. We've been studying the Gospels. We, we see what they mean, and then we apply it to the life of the church, ecclesial life. Okay, so this is kind of neat. It kind of shows how, how the two interplay, the church's life and the scriptures. So John's gospel presupposes the three gospels, and he kind of gives us explanations of those gospels. He, he shows us things that, that the first three don't talk about. He fills in the blanks. It's a book of, and I'm just going to write this up here because it's so good. I mean, it's so important. It's, it's a book of magnificent, magnificent beauty. Like Luke's gospel, it's, it's, it's even more beautiful than Luke's gospel, I would say. Magnificent beauty. And literary artistry. Literary artistry. If you guys ever go into like a, a scholarly library, commentaries on the gospels, the, the commentaries on John will far outnumber the commentaries on Luke or the commentaries on Matthew, or the commentaries on Mark. Because John writes so well, almost like a riddle, where you're supposed to kind of figure it out. You know, I mean, there are so many little clues in his gospel. And it's so fun to do Bible study, because if, you, if, you found, you know, if you've done your Bible study, you can show this to people, and it's like, oh my gosh, wow, that's how that goes together? That's what that means? I mean, there are different themes. There's, there's the Jesus' hour. There are the seven signs. There's, the, in the, there's the, the correspondence with the book of Genesis, how he begins. You know, he gives salvation as a, as a new creation. He begins with, you know, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there was light and darkness, but the light overcame the darkness. What happened in the beginning of Genesis? In the beginning, there was God, and, you know, and, and the, he separated the light from the darkness and put a greater light and a, and a lesser light, you know, one to rule over the day and one to rule over the night. And then in, in, uh, the creation narrative culminates in a marriage. What happens in John chapter 2? A wedding, the wedding feast of Cana. 
John is using the book of Genesis. There's so much literary artistry, so John is a lot of fun to study. And that's why he's a, a lot of people's favorite gospel. So John was an apostle. And I'm going to go and move on from the gospels real quick because we have uh, a small amount of, of time left. Um, I want to look at uh, St. Paul's 13 epistles. Yeah, by the way, this week we're going over, we're just kind of go, giving an overview of the New Testament, kind of talking about what it consists of, giving some insights. Next week, chapter 18 is titled The Incarnation. And we're going to go, we're going to deep sea dive into scripture again, like we did last semester. Okay, so this week we're just, it's an overview. How many books are in the New Testament? How many books are in the Old Testament? How many books are in the Old Testament? 39 if you're a Lutheran, and how many if you're a Catholic? 46, 46. So how many books are in the Bible according to a Catholic? 73. How many books are in the Bible according to a Lutheran? 66. All right. All right, good. So we're getting some numbers down here. We're getting an overview of what Scripture is like. Paul's epistle to the Romans And I think I may have already said this before in this class, but if you ever run into somebody and they say, I read Paul's epistle to the Romans in one sitting. I don't need to read it anymore, and I understand it. They are lying. (laughs) They are lying through their teeth. Paul's epistle to the Romans is one of the most debated over, most complex theological works of art, of theological art that exists in the New Testament. It's, it's incredibly complex. I mean, I've, I've done several studies of Romans, and it's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a real uh, roller coaster. Romans is an incredible epistle. Paul does such a wonderful job. And what I'd like to do in, this, in our parish is do maybe a four or six week, even though that, that won't be enough time, but we'll still do it, uh, Bible study on Romans. We have the epistles to the Corinthians. Okay, these were written to the church in in Corinth. And there was an epistle between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Actually, 2nd Corinthians should probably be 3rd Corinthians. But it was lost. So we actually have, you know, what could have been sacred scripture, but God didn't, you know, ordain it to come about in his his providence, that we would have what really should have been I guess 1.5 Corinthians that comes between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. But what's really, what's really cool about Corinthians is in 1st Corinthians, Paul says, send a public sinner in your midst, a particular person who is committing a sexual sin. He says, send them to Satan. Let him be anathema. Paul, what are you... Come on, Christian love, charity. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 13? You know, love is patient, love is kind. You know, love never boasts. What are you doing? He's excommunicating the sinner. He's giving a command for excommunication so that the sinner will realize his sin and repent. What's really cool about 2 Corinthians is what does it tell us? He repented. He came back to full communion with the church. He was a penitent and he came back. And that's what's really cool, one of the neat features I like about First and Second Corinthians. We have Galatians. We've covered, we covered a, a lot of Galatians last semester. We looked through it about how Paul talks about how we're justified by the life of faith 
and not the ceremonial precepts of the Mosaic law like circumcision, uh, washing our hands, kosher food laws, ceremonial observances. The epistle to the Ephesians is about the unit, about how in the Old Testament you had uh, the Jews, you know, were God's people and continued and continued throughout history as God's people, and then there became an enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles. But what happened in Jesus Christ is that dividing wall of separation, which he, he's alluding to the, the, the wall of the temple that separated the Jew from the Gentile, uh, has been broken down by the cross. And so now both Jew and Gentile can enter the family of God on the same terms. And this is the epistle to the Ephesians. By the way, Ephesians like 1 through 14 is one long sentence. If you ever turn to the beginning of Ephesians, it just continues. There's no, there's no stop. It's just a long run-on sentence. So uh, after that, we have Philippians. Philippians is one of the captivity epistles. Paul probably wrote three epistles when he was in uh, captivity. These three epistles, when Paul was in prison... He wrote uh, Ephesus, oh, not Ephesus, <laughs> Ephesians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, or Philemon. Those, those four are called the captivity epistles. You have his two epistles to the Thessalonians. A bunch of people are saying that the, the second coming of Christ has already happened. Paul's like, no, it hasn't. You all would know <laughs> if it happened. Uh, that's great. We have his epistles to Timothy, who he's grooming as a young bishop in the church. First and Second Timothy talk a lot about ecclesial ministry, about the bishops. Talks about how um, the church is the, the pillar and foundation of truth in First Timothy 3.15. Uh, he talks about, um, he says to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was conferred on you through the prophetic word with the imposition of hands of the presbyterate. He's talking about the sacrament of holy orders given by the laying on of hands, and today we still have that. The bishops lay their hands on the candidates to the ministerial priesthood, the presbyterate, and that's how they're ordained. The, the gift of the Holy Spirit was given on them. Um, and then, he, and then he says to Timothy, later on in the same epistle, do not lay hands too readily on anyone. Why? Because that's where the, the, uh, the gift of holy orders is given. So don't just ordain anybody. We don't want bad clergy. Um, and then we have his epistle to Titus, another young bishop in the church. He says, um, verse 5 of chapter 1, For this reason I left you in Crete, so that you might set right what remains to be done, and appoint presbyters in every town. Again, we're talking about the ministry of the church, the, uh, how Titus is a bishop. Uh, he says in verse 15 of chapter 2, Say these things, exhort and correct with all authority. Okay, there's the authority of the bishopric. Um, he says in verse 10 of chapter 3, After a first and second warning, break off contact with a heretic. The, the bishops have the authority to excommunicate. That's how Paul was able to do what he did in 1 Corinthians. He talks about baptism in chapter 3, verse 5. He talks about how we're saved not because of any righteous deeds we had done, but he saved us through the bath of rebirth. It could be translated as the bath of regeneration or the bath of recreation. Uh, actually, the Greek is uh, polygenesis. Genesis. You know, uh, beginning, new beginning. 
He talks about the bath of new beginning. He saved us through the bath of new beginning. He's talking about baptism and renewal by the Holy Spirit, which, whom he richly poured out on us. He talks about being justified by grace that comes through baptism. We have the epistle of Philemon, where we have a runaway slave who converted to Christianity after he ran away. And uh, Paul says, return to your master and take this letter with you. And Paul exhorts the master to receive him as a brother in Christ and not to punish him too severely. Or not even to punish him. But that this, uh, but to receive him as a brother. because Then we have the epistle to the Hebrews, which we've already talked about. We have James. You know, Paul continually says, we're not saved by works. You know, some people think that that means just, you know, being moral. So some people can, can be immoral, right? Because we're not saved by our good works. Well, no, Paul meant ceremonial observances as opposed to the life of faith. So James sets them right. He says literally that we are justified by works. Now, he's not talking about uh, just any kind of works, like good people are justified. No, he's talking about faith works, basically, is his, is his premise, is that faith cannot be separated from good works. Faith demonstrates itself through works. Uh, he talks, we have First and Second Peter, which are most probably written by St. Peter the Apostle. We have the three epistles of John, which are very, sh- the first one is, am- is also amazing. The first epistle of John has the same themes as the, as the Gospel of John. First epistle to John is one of my favorite epistles in the entire New Testament. If you ever want to realize your own dignity as a Christian, you want to, you want to bask in the warmth of God's grace, and you want, to, you want to reflect upon what you've been made in baptism and how God looks upon you as a child of God, read First John. First John is, a, is all about divine sonship. And then we have the, uh, the, the epistle of Jude, which is incredibly short and talks about false teachers. Then we have the book of Revelation, which again talks about the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman uh, legions under Titus Flavius Vespasianus. And it uh, talks about the birth of the church uh, after that, you know, the spreading of the church, and then the final coming of Christ. And then what is the final word of the Bible? Revelation. The final word of the Bible? The final word of the Bible. No, not the end. How do we end our prayers? Amen. Amen. That's how Revelation ends. Amen. He says, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, let us pray. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, thank you so much for your inspired word, for this year of the word, for uh, giving us the gift of literacy and the printing press and to be able to sit at home over a cup of coffee and have you speak to us, not that we hear your word, not that you speak to us audibly, but that you have written a letter to us and that we may read it freely without persecution. We thank you for this. I thank you for these wonderful epistles which inspire our faith and renew us uh, in your love. Please teach us how to read scripture, how to allow it to energize us, to refresh us, to edify us, to build us up. We give you praise and thanks, and we glorify you. We ask that your will would be done in our lives. Teach us in the scriptures how to do that will and what that will is. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.